0: I'm not gonna go take $60 million and build something for fees, I'm not gonna do it. If I have a good site, I'm gonna wait until there's a safe environment and I'm gonna maximize the bet. One of the things you learn as you get older, make less bets, more money. When you get an opportunity, focus on that opportunity because it's a good one. Because every time you go get an opportunity, it's risk. So I think less is more.
1: One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors... You're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. All right. Do you like podcasts? I obviously like podcasts and one that I like a lot is called The Distribution that Juniper Square puts on. It's hosted by my good friend, who's also been a guest on this podcast twice, Brandon Sedloff. Highly recommend checking out the episode they did with their CEO and co-founder, Alex Robinson. They talk a lot about the current state of the business and really just how they're looking at it going forward. They also did a good one with the CEO of uh, BGO, Bental Green Oak. Sunny Calso, which was fantastic. Juniper Square has meant a lot to Ford Capital. Um, we have been one of their earliest adopters. I think we were one of their first 10 customers. And and really, if you think of how we run our business, it's synonymous with Juniper Square. We use them in every which way we can. They continue to come out with new products uh, that our team devours and adopts. And we really aim at Ford as part of being the best operator in the world. A lot of that is how we deal with investors, how we raise capital, how we treat our investors, how we communicate with them. And a lot of that just happens through Juniper Square. So I've been talking about this company for five years on my podcast for a reason and will continue to. It's just that good. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you wanna know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. I have, growing up in the DFW real estate industry, been a huge fan of you. You're a legend around these parts. But I actually don't wanna start the conversation in real estate. I would like to start the conversation on a road in Colorado that we talked about at lunch today. Sure that I think was a big, life-changing moment for you.
0: Yeah, it, it really changed my life forever because it got me into a personal relationship with Christ, but it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's kind of weird to say that a bad accident was good, Yeah, but there's so much good that's come out of it. Okay, so what happened? So I was a bachelor and you know I was raised a Catholic young and came to Dallas at 28 had an alcohol problem and got sober. I didn't go to rehab, but I went to AA meetings and I would go I'd go to AA at noon and I'd go there at five and I'd stay there from five o'clock until they closed mm. because I was afraid if I wasn't there, I'd drink. Yep. And got sober and then started working on my life and my business kind of took off. And I was on a motorcycle trip with a bunch of buddies. So my life was good. I'm sober. I'm living in the world though. I'm actually building my business and it was going well. And I was in Aspen for the 4th of July weekend. It was a, and on a Friday night, July 5th, it was 1997. We're driving to Telluride and I was on a motorcycle and I tried to pass a guy in a pickup truck. And I can close my eyes right now and see him with the window down and his arm on the window looking at me. And as I tried to pass him, he sped up. And he was smiling at me. It was a two lane road. <clears throat> and so I said, okay, this guy's crazy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just slow down and get behind him and then figure out a way around him. And as I started slowing down, he slowed down. So he was kind of leaving me out on the passing lane. I had the bike in a higher gear, so it didn't have a lot of pep. So I dropped it into a lower gear and gunned it and got around him. And as I was getting around him, there was a car coming and there was a sharp turn. And that wasn't crazy sharp, but it was pretty sharp. And I just got around him and got into the other lane and I, I couldn't make the turn. It was either getting hit by that car or trying to make the turn. And I went off the road and it was right after Christopher Reeves, Superman was paralyzed. And I just kept, they, they talked about how he kind of went head first into the ground. And even today I can remember being in the air on the motorcycle going, I need to jump off this bike. And which didn't make a lot of sense, but I said, okay, I'm gonna push off. And I pushed off. And then I kind of tried to wrap my arms around my chest to protect myself. And I thought I'd kind of fall and roll. And, you know, if, you're in t- if you've been in Colorado, there's a lot of rocks, a lot of, it's oh, a yeah. choppy area. And the impact was incredible. I'd never gone through anything like that. And I was laying in the ditch and my arms from my wrist to my elbow, the biggest piece of bone was one inch. Oh so it was like a puzzle piece. And so they didn't function well. My elbow was pushed out of the skin and I had no pain. It was just all warm. Everything felt really warm. And I thought I was waiting for the blood to come out of my mouth, like on the Westerns yeah. and, and die. Oh my God. And so for the first time in my life, first time in 15 years, I was praying. And because I'm a real estate guy, I was trying to make a deal. Because <laughs> I was laying there going, I have no idea where I'm going. I think I've been a good guy, but I didn't know if I'd done enough to get to heaven. And so I started praying for the first time in years, and I just said, God, let me live. I was estranged from my kids because of my alcoholism. Yeah. I was sober, but they had not forgiven me, and I had not gone back to work on that, those relationships. And I had a lot of unfinished business. I was laying there thinking, if this is my last breath, what is my, what legacy, not my legacy to people, what have I done? And I was estranged from my two kids. There was just a lot of things. The girls, the type of girls I was dating, I, it just would not have been the way I wanted to go out. And all those things just started rushing through my head. And I was praying. And I said, Lord, if you I don't think I could probably call them Lord. Then it was probably God, just let me live, you know, and I'll change it up. And so I was there maybe 20, 25 minutes and I go, well, I guess I'm not going to (laughs) die. So I started thinking about what I needed to do and the pain started coming because the shock wore off and now I'm thinking I'm going to live. And so I had friends that came that I was riding bikes with that came back looking for me, but they didn't see me. And I couldn't yell because I had a full face mask on and or helmet and my arms didn't work. Oh my gosh. So I crawled up the side of the the hill and it wasn't terribly deep, you know, but I crawled up the side of the hill and just rolled over on the on the road shoulder and immediately a car pulled over. And it was a couple from Louisville, Texas, on vacation. It was a husband, wife, and two kids. And they stopped. Small world, Louisville, Texas. I know. And they just sat with me, and they called the police. And then the cops came, and then we called an ambulance. We had to wait over two hours for an ambulance, because it was Fourth of July weekend, and you're in Colorado, and nobody's working. And a funny part of that story I told you at lunches, The couple that waited for me, they waited until the police came and then they left. And the husband, I had, they wrote their phone number down and I lost it, went through all the surgeries and stuff because I was in Gunnison in the hospital. And the guy came over to me and he said, you know, I got to tell you what I was talking to my wife about right before we pulled over to save you. And I go, what? what?" He goes, I was trying to talk her into letting me buy a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) I said, that's off the table. (laughs) So... They put, I, I sat there, I put me in an ambulance. I went to Gunnison. I had surgery. The doctor said, I got good news and bad news. He said, the bad news is I've never seen anybody broken up like your arms. And he said, but I, I see skiing accidents all the time. So I'm the bet you're in the right spot to get it fixed. And I was so euphoric that I was alive. First thing I wanted was pain meds. So when I got pain meds, that was awesome. The cop wouldn't even give me Tylenol. I'm going Tylenol, <laughs> but, and I went through surgery and I came out and I'm, I'm going to tell you one cool story. Yeah. So I wake up, I'm sitting in bed, I've got my, I'm propped up in bed, a hospital bed, and both of my arms are propped up on pillows and they're wrapped in white gauze and there's blood oozing out. And I've got metal rods from here to here in each elbow. Mm. And it's, they're just holding my hands because the bone wasn't enough. They had to hold it out with the rod for it to grow together. Oh, yeah. And this nurse comes in, he's a male nurse. His name was Paul. What I didn't know when he walked in is he had been a detective in New York. He'd been shot twice. The second time he got shot, he said, I'm out of here. He goes to nursing school and ends up in Gunnison, Colorado. He comes in and he looks at me and he says, you are, a mess but you're gonna to have to figure this out and he wheels that table over and puts a bowl of cheerios in front of me and my left elbow was was broken so he in my my right elbow my left hand he put a rubber piece of rubber between my fist and stuck a spoon in it and he gave me cheerios and he said you got to figure out how to eat
1: oh my god
0: so i start trying to eat and i'm spilling cheerios everywhere and i start crying because I started realizing that this was not gonna be a quick recovery. So he left me there and he comes back in and he looks at me and I'm, he could see I had teared up and I've got Cheerios everywhere. And he goes, he said, I'm gonna take you outside and give you, get you some sun. I'm going, I'm in this bed stacked up and he takes all the pillows off, picks me up, puts me in a wheelchair, kind of gets my arms situated and he wheels me outside and leaves me under a tree. He said, I'll be back in about an hour. Okay. And right across the parking lot is where people that are wheelchair bound would pull up for therapy. So I'm sitting there watching a guy get out of the driver's seat, get a lift to bring his wheelchair up, slide down and get in his chair, close his car or van or whatever it was. And I watched that for an hour. And his message was, Hey buddy, you're lucky. You're walking, you're gonna walk and you're gonna be fine, quit pounding. And he came and when he got me back, I said, Paul, I ended up, we got really close. I said, I called him Paulie. I said, Paulie, I am in. I said, no more complaining from this guy. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm gonna do. And thank you for, for leaving me out there. And so mostly it was a good ride. And then uh, as I got better, I really wanted to honor my deal with God so I went back to the church I had been going to, and I just didn't feel like I was connected there. I was there, but I was distracted. And the thing that was cool is God kept kind of putting people in my life that knew me, that had talked to me about Jesus before, but I didn't, wasn't interested. This, I'm interested, right? So I had bought a house, I was a bachelor, and in, I bought it before I left on the trip. I'm in the hospital recovering, And my assistant says, what do you want to do about the pool? I said, just whoever was doing it for the last guy, have him do it. So I'm I'm at home. So what they would do is because you break your arms really bad, they grow back too long and you can't supinate. So we'd have to wait for them to be healed. And then they go in and break my wrists and shave the bones down. So like you would get better and then you'd know you had to go back in for another surgery. It's like, congrats, we're going to. Right. And, and the pain, you know, it was fine, but it was like, oh my God, you know, you're just starting to feel good and you're going back in and they'd break, they break both arms. So I am, they, they, I had nurses living with me and my son, and they would wheel me out to the pool deck to get sun. And again, my arms are up in the air with rods on. I can't do anything. I mean, they could have put me in traffic. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) And this pool guy comes up and he's big burly guy. And he, I'm sitting there and he goes, you know, we asked what happened and I told him and I find out he was a music minister at a Christian church in Carrollton, Texas. And I told him this, the journey I was on and I was trying to figure it out. And so he started coming every Saturday and the first Saturday after that conversation, he brought me a Walkman and a a cassette and he would just put it on my head and push the button and clean the pool. And then after he was finished cleaning the pool, we'd talk about it. And the first time, I wasn't sure I was interested, and then I started really looking forward to him coming. And then I had a couple other friends that were coming over and witnessing. I had John Mazel from East West Ministry took me under his wing. But long story short, July 5th of 97, March 22nd, on my pool deck, I accepted Christ. And it was a immediate life changer for me. It was like euphoric because I was always afraid that people would figure me out because I never really liked who I was. I tried to be good, but I, I didn't love me. I would try to portray who I was, but I wasn't really that guy. And deep down in, I knew. And so for the first time, the day I accepted Christ, it was like, I was like floating. And it would just a turn on a dime for me. I used to have kind of a hair trigger on, you know, I'd get upset, I would stuff, 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 then get upset. And it just was a complete change. And then I just went through my life starting to change everything. And it was just a process where God changed my heart. And I got into Bible studies and I just started surrounding myself. I went looking for a church and I went to this pool, guys, the pool cleaners, church, and they would speak in tongues and it was pretty, yeah. Pretty wild. And, but I didn't let any of that bother me. I was just focused on the pr- preacher. The preacher was great, but wh- I eventually changed everything up. I was dating, you know, and I said, okay, this is probably not going to be my wife. So I need to change all that up. So I I prayed to God. I said, God, I'm going to go looking for my wife, bring me a wife. I will honor you in my dating. And Ninety days after I said that prayer, and I said it in earnest, I met my wife on a blind date, and we had our first date. And we didn't have another one for a month, but then the the second date, I sat there we're we're, we're having our dinner, and who says I'm forty 47. <laughs> and I'm sitting there saying I want you know I want to honor you in our dating if I I'm looking for a wife. This is like you know she hasn't had her first sip of her margarita yet. <laughs> And I said, but this is where I'm at in my life. I said, I'm, I'm so grateful to be alive. And I've had this faith conversion and this is who I am. And if, if this scares you, you're, you, you should be with me because this is the road I'm on. And my wife, who is the sweetest, best person I know on earth, just looked at me going, where did this guy come from? And from that day on, we were, we were connected and we, I proposed in October and we were married in November. And we honored the Lord, you know, all the way through it. Instead of jumping in the sack, we were getting to know each other. And I will say, I've never, I have the most security in my marriage that, you know, anybody I know, I just know I'm locked in for life. And, and I think it's because God's blessing us. That might've been more than you wanted to hear, but that was,
1: no, that was exactly how I hoped we would start. One thing you said in there, uh, there's a few things, but I, I wrote down one, which was it there was a, uh, let's call it a pile of bad relationships that had stacked up pre-crash. Yes. Yes. And I think for a lot of people, we tend to tell ourselves a story that like either those relationships are tarnished forever, or we have too much pride to go fix them, or we don't even know how to fix them. Right? Maybe we really want to fix them, but we just don't really know. And I know I've had that experience in certain stages of my life where I've ha- burned bridges, sometimes unknowingly Can you just speak like a little bit about how you go back into the pile of bodies that you've stacked up and start bringing everybody
0: back to life? So in getting sober, AA teaches you that you have to make a list of all the people that you've offended, whether they know it or not, like if you stole from them or you have to make a list. You got to clear all the debris out of your mind so that you can go anywhere and you've made per- personal amends. If I owe you money, I got to go to you and tell you, I realize I owe you money. And if I can't pay you, if I'm supposed to pay a hundred bucks, I got to pay you five bucks a week, whatever it is I can pay you, but I have to make amends. I have to make it right. And it may not, now it's your choice whether you forgive me, right? Yeah. So what they do is they teach you, go make amends. So like, I wanted to be able to walk into a room and if I had offended you, at least you know, I've addressed it. Now yeah. you may choose not to forgive me, yeah. but I can look you in the eye and know I've dealt with it. Yeah. And then if you want to be mad at me, like my ex-wife was mad at me for 20 years and then she forgave me and it was a big day. I still get choked up thinking about that one. But so through AA, I thought that they would see my change in my life and my kids would forgive me or they would come to me cause I was seeking them. And I realized that the pain was too deep. So, and through my wife, Keely, she really helped me because she said, Bill, you have to fix this. Like my daughter would come and be in my presence, but you could tell she, she loathed me and I would try to get along with her, but I didn't really address it. And we were visiting. I, I was introducing my, my about to be wife to my daughter, Kelly who is now, we're like so tight. That's and awesome. Kelly shows up and she's rude and she's just not wanting nothing to do with me. And Keely goes, you gotta fix this. So we're staying at the Drake Hotel in, in Chicago. So I call, she said, you call her and you get her in a room and you're gonna go sit in that room until you get this figured out. I wow. said, okay, so I call Ke- Kelly in the morning and I said, honey, I'm coming down to talk to you. And she goes, no, I don't, I don't really want to. So I go back to Keeley, who's my wife. I got a Kelly and a Keely yeah. and a Kaylee. Oh man, God. Oh no. <laughs> but so I go to Keeley and I go, Keely, she didn't want to do it. She could get, get back in there and call her. And you're going down there. So I go down there and we get in a room and it's, it's just a cry fest. And the deal that I made with her in that room that day was I lived in Dallas. She lived in Illinois. I said, I'll go to counseling with you every week. You pick the counselor and I'll be there. So for 18 months, I would fly to O'Hare, drive two hours, have dinner with her, go to counseling, get up in the morning, have breakfast, drive back to O'Hare, come back to Dallas. And in the beginning, it, was, it, it wasn't every week, it was every other week. And I did that for a year and a half. And it was about just showing up. And I just kept going. And I got to tell you, the counselor should be disbarred. She was horrible, but, but I was just in there showing up, you know, and one day, one day, I swear to you, one day I'm in there and we're done with counseling. And my daughter, Kelly looks at me, she goes, dad, you don't have to do this anymore. She had forgiven me. There's a lot of guilt in life for the mistakes you make, and it feels good when you're forgiven. So that relationship today is solid. She works with me. She moved. <laughs> she just moved her family from Illinois, my grandkids and everybody, a year ago, and she's in our industrial group, and uh, we're really close. We talk so close, and. I've got an adult son, Chris, that lives in Tampa. And I did the same thing with him, but it wasn't counseling. It was just going and seeing him and talking to him. And he forgave me. And we have a really good relationship. And Chris, is he struggles with alcohol and he had been sober seven years and he just started drinking again. And so we're all dealing with that. But I think people wanna know you really care. And I think it's about showing them And I think it's all in different ways. My daughter just didn't believe I was there. And I think it was just showing up. And you know, it was not easy to get in the car and drive and do that, but it was so worth it. Some of the
1: best time you've ever spent.
0: Right. And and like the relationship we have, I used to think when I was drinking, if anybody would ever respect me or believe what I say, because when you drink a lot, you lie because you're always hiding the ball right because you get messes and my kids respect me and they love me and we're close and that's good that's really good that's, that's, it's the best what it's what
1: you said just about legacy like the way you think like you don't really care about there's only there some people think of their legacy as i'm going to die and people are going to think about me forever and everybody's going to think about me and everything i did and Maybe you could just share a little bit about how you think about legacy.
0: Well, I think we're all vapor, right? I mean, and I think for me, legacy to me is having the world be a little bit better place after I'm gone. And it's about relationships. It's about reputation to me and relationships are everything and experiences. Like people I know that are dying, all they do is they they don't talk about how much money they got talking about the people they love and the the places they've been and the experiences they've had with their friends. And that's really what life is, right? And so for any of us to think like, okay, I've built this big real estate career and I've done all this stuff. They're going to forget you two weeks after you're gone. I mean, you're just, everything you own that the kids don't want is going on a garage sale. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody might bring you up, hey, you remember when Kali did this or that, but pretty much we're vapor. And I think we need to realize that it's more about what we're doing than a legacy. I think your legacy is is the way you live your life and the lives you've touched. And for me, it's all about touching people and with sincerity. Yeah. Let's just talk about one more thing and then we're going to get
1: into real estate a little bit. But I just want to talk about your recent trip to Cuba. Yeah. Because I think as we're talking about our faith and what it's like to follow Jesus in America. I picked up on a few things of like, what's that
0: like to go serve people in a third world country? Well, one of the one of the people that took me under my wing when I was a new Christian seeking Jesus was John Mazel of East West Ministries. And I was introduced to him. This is the modern-day Paul, this guy. If you saw his Bible, it's it's like. It's it's powder. It's this guy is just an unbelievable man, and he would come every week and disciple me, and just teach me. And he loved on me, and he put other people in my life. And so I got to know him. And East West Ministries plants churches across the country, and it's a it's a faith based Christian organization that is spreading the word of Jesus. Right, it's making making salvation available to people all over the world. So I started financially backing him and supporting them. And then right after I got married, I told my wife, Keely, I wanted to go to Cuba. And she says, well, if you're going, I'm going. So we went together and we went, it's door-to-door evangelism. So you get a church member, they've got these churches planted everywhere. You get a church member and he's maybe got a brother or a sister or a neighbor that he wants to know the Lord and come to church. I have an interpreter that speaks Spanish and English, and we go out and call on them. We go right in their house and just share the gospel. And so I did that with Keeley many years ago, 20 years ago, and then I did it with my son, Hunter, when, when he was 16, four years ago, and I just got back. I was there last week. And you just can't believe the poverty, but you can't believe the happiness. They have nothing and they're happy. You know, we all seek money and stuff, and it's just not about the stuff. You see somebody that's living in a 100 by 100 square foot block home and there's five people living in it, all sleeping in one bed and they're happy. And they just are so grateful to have what they have. And they have nothing. And quick, just to tell you how bad the the, the um, it's gotten there, four years ago, the government, the average salary or income Per person was $30 a month, and the government gives them two dozen eggs, two chickens, a bag of rice, and a bag of beans. So we were there last week. It's now four eggs, no chickens, bag of rice, a bag of beans, and the monthly income is $7, $7. And to get a visa to leave, why don't they leave? Visa is $800. So you have no chance. They can't even scrape the money together unless somebody gives it to them. And the, our interpreters were making $25 a day and because they're interpreting for us, which is a ton of money for them. And both of my interpreters are saving money to try to get a visa to get out. And 400,000 people left Cuba last year. but But the experience was one with my son, witnessing my son in service was incredible. So awesome. So awesome. And you know, at a young he's a young man, but he's got a great heart, and I'm proud of him. And then I was with eleven other men that I really respect. Some I knew, some I didn't, all very successful in business, very humble, and just focused on being in service as far as sharing their faith, helping people any way they could. I don't think you can outgive God. And I I mean, I'm a big believer in giving money, but I think giving your time. Is the number one thing because you you get more out of it than you'll ever give yeah and i will tell you i was glad to get home but it was an unbelievable experience what's the common thread what do people over there pray for what do they want they want they want a better life they just want they they you know like i ask, you know do you have elections yes but it, they know it's not real they're all just pretty much beaten down with they think that this is their lot in life all of them pray to get out. They're all looking for a way to get out. Yep. And none of them really have it. And I mean, I think you could overthrow Cuba with a pitchfork and a couple of shotguns if we went down there. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I kept telling this group I was with, I said, guys, we need to come back with a barge yep. and just save them. Cause you want to save them all, right? But the, the, and you talk to people like the older people, they're just very worn down. Because they saw the good days, right? They saw, and they they saw so democracy, comment. and now they see socialism. And communism. And communism, and it doesn't work. And I mean, they're just milking them. It's terrible.
1: All right. Let's talk about real estate. You know a thing or
0: two about it. Awesome. How did you even get in the business? So my dad was in real estate. My dad was, I, I respected my dad. I looked up to him big time. And from a very young age, we were poor. And my dad, uh, when I was like three years old or four or five years old, I was old enough to remember, he had been working in a car dealership and it went broke. And so we went to real estate school and we lived in a farmhouse rent free from our rich relatives. And my dad got in the real estate business and I watched him get into it. And he was in a town of 8,000 people so like when we were six and seven years old and somebody wanted to be a cop and somebody was a cowboy or whatever i was a real estate guy so i never knew what it meant but i always knew that was all i was ever going to do and one was because i really respected my dad and two i just wanted to do it and so as i grew up and i got to college and and i came back home and i realized i was in a really small town and the deal sizes were too small. And my dad would sell a house or lease a storefront and maybe go do a little small build a suit for 8,000 square feet. And he was very well known in the city and very well thought of. I really respected how my dad was respected. I I, I admired him. But I realized early on when I was there after college that I ne- I wanted to play bigger and I didn't know how to. So I started driving to Chicago and it was when fast food was rolling out. So this is in the 80s, right? Fast food came in the 80s? Well, yeah, 80s, 90s. It's oh, when wow. it's when fast food like when McDonald's was expanding and yeah. Burger King and all of them. I mean, they're everywhere now, but they yeah. were <laughs> And so I would go up and I would go look for pad sites and I would go try to tie them up. I didn't have any money, but I'd tie up 2 acres and sell one off and have one and I started figuring out, you know, the real estate business. And I would go back to LaSalle, where I'm from, and I just realized, I said, I I gotta go figure out another way. My alcoholism was strong at that point, and I had a buddy that was buying four-wheel drive pickup trucks, and he went to Dallas. He was buying them up there and selling them here, and I came, and I came with him, and I just saw Dallas. It was the early 80s, and they're building buildings everywhere, It's right before everything collapsed. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about- <laughs> Got here that. right before that. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, this is where I belong. And I went back to my dad and said, hey, dad, I'm going to go try Texas. And he said, I don't want you to go. I always thought you would take this company over, but go, you can always come home. And I loaded up my stereo and I had 300 bucks and I came to Dallas and I knew no one. I, w- I followed a girl, I'd met a girl. I, was, I got married young and a divorce and I was still drinking heavily. 18 months after i got to dallas i got sober and then you know i was broke so i took a bunch of jobs that i had to take because i needed the money yeah so it was like watching your house burn down and you don't have a hose you know i was just knew i was burning time and i just it was driving me crazy and i kept thinking maybe i had a chance here and a chance there and i was working for a developer that got into the S&L business. And he said to me, we were building office condos on the Tollway, office condos. Don't recommend it. <laughs> but he got in, he bought, it was Don Dixon, he bought Vernon Savings and started it. And he said, you can have whatever you want. I'm selling this real estate to another company. And they took me and I could convert them to leases. And I converted them to leases and I made a little bit of money. And I said, I'm going to leave. And I went and got a business card printed and I worked, I remember saving money to buy my fax machine and I worked out of my, my, my extra bedroom at home. And I just started, I decided I was going to be a tenant rep broker because I didn't need any money. And I thought, I always thought office buildings were cool. And I said, I'm going to go figure out what makes it all work. And then I'm going to go be a developer. Who knew, you know, a <laughs> little bit of delirious thought, but yeah. I thought you never know and so that's what I did and I ran out of money and I would go to the mailbox and it was in the days when they would send you a credit card and I would be like like two months late on my mortgage payment and a couple months late on my car payment and a credit card would show up and I go okay and I'd use the credit card and I would just keep going because I just said I'm gonna I'm gonna do this I'm going to just do it no matter what. I'm going to keep going. I would, you know, I started making some money, but it wasn't much. And what I did was my first business idea (laughs) was the RTC was kicking everybody out of these buildings because people would go take 20,000 feet. They'd get five years of free rent. And in five years, you have to pay rent or or pay rent. But the rent was incredible. Or two years of free rent. It was a 10-year lease with two years. And when the two years came up, they really needed 5,000 feet, they're in 20, and the whole thing blew up, right? Yeah. So all these people were getting evicted, and I thought, well, that guy's in 20, but he really needs five. So I started calling on them, and I said, listen, I know you got evicted, but I can go find you space. And they would hire me, and I would go to the other landlords, and I said, this guy needs five, and I know he's been evicted, and I agreed to take my fee when they got the rent. So instead of getting the four and a half percent, I take six and I met my God, I found a business and I had all these people and I was starting to make money. And and then I had people wanting to come work for me and then I was in the business. And, but the first good idea I had was going to these guys that were getting evicted and I started building up this cash flow, and then I decided, okay, I want to get in the tenant rep business because I was starting to figure it out. And I brokered a deal to the Bass family in the middle of it. I was just getting started. And it was Robert M. Bass Land Company. And they said, do you want to come work here? And I went, wow, there was Rainwater and Bonderman and all these really smart God, people. Yeah. And I said, yes. So all I had was a business card and a fax machine. <laughs> so I said, I said, okay. And I shut it down and I went, I came over and I drive to Fort Worth every day and I worked with them. And American Express gave us 200 million during the RTC collapse to go buy real estate. And I was just a broker, but I got to spend a little bit of time with Rainwater and he was he was like the Pied Piper. And he used to say, (laughs) when they're buying, we should be selling. And when they're scared, we ought to be buying. And so like kind of where we're at today is I think it's time to buy, right? A lot of people are waiting and I think it's a good time to buy. But so I did that for three years and it kind of formed my view of investing. I'm a very contrarian investor. I always look for value. I'm not, I don't like to pay up for anything. I mean, I like to buy pants on sale, so I might as well buy real estate on sale. <laughs> and then went back and then built my business to where I got into the multi-market tenant rep business. And I did that by hiring four attractive, smart girls that would go out and open doors. And we built a really nice business. And then we started tracking all the information. And then I went to institutional money and I said, Hey, I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm doing five leases downtown. There were three vacant buildings. Now there's two pretty soon. There's not going to be any. We should go buy this building. And then I started getting traction with that. We started buying buildings and I got in the investment business and then I loved that. And then when I had to, when I was going to do tenor rep business, I was pretty good at it. But when I was going to do it, I didn't want to do it. Like I'd be in the morning putting the tie on, I'd lose all my energy. So that told me I had to do something. So in 07, I sold my business. CB, I could have sold to CB or one of the big brokerage companies, but they wanted me. And I sold it to my employees for nothing. But it was for my freedom. And I became an investor developer then.
1: So 07, okay. 07 is when I got out of the service business okay let's just go real quick back to the collapse so you arrive in dallas dallas is humming it's the land of opportunity i'm assuming mr crow trammell crow was just building everything you could see yep how quickly did it go from great to just disaster
0: like overnight it was crazy Really? yeah and what well, do you mean was they changed, the changed the your mind loss. at the time
1: obviously you didn't have a lot of ownership well, in anything so it's not like it was going to kill you from that perspective.
0: So I was a broker and I was trying to get 5% or back end pieces for bringing deals to people. Yeah. Everybody was signing notes and everything was a tax driven investment. So it it was tax basis stuff. They're writing things off in five years, whatever it was. But so I had made relationships where I brokered and I got pieces of deals. And I signed notes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't have anything, so I didn't think it was a big deal. And the guy I was signing a note with had $50 million in net worth or whatever it was. Yeah. They all went broke. And I ended up standing there and I owed $70 million. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm still living on credit cards. And I negotiated it down to $3.5 and, and I paid them. So, Dang. For, and so for the next... Fifteen years, I paid the three and a half million bucks. I want to tell you one story. Oh, let's go. So, I'm six months late on my car payment. <laughs> the banker's on the first floor of the building that I'm officing in. I had I had moved my office up into a building, and the banker says, "I'm walking through the lobby. He's giving me this. Hey, come on in here." So I go in there. I I I always stood up, and I went in, and he goes. Bill, you're six months late. You got to give me the car. And I said, now that Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to make amends, right? And I I looked at him. I said, please don't take the car. He says, I got to take the car. I said, okay, if I give you the car, will you give me 90 days? He says, that car's not worth, I think I owed 7,000. It was probably worth a dollar. (laughs) And 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 I go, give me 90 days. He said, okay, well. So he took my car and it was parked in the garage. And I went and rented a car. And I told people I was having, I had engine trouble. And my car sat there. And I went out and I just started, you know, putting deals together. And I scraped the $7,000 together. Now I still owe three and a half million. And I walked in and I paid him for it. And he looked at me and he goes, I just can't believe you did this. And I, I, but it was about, I had to, you know, I had to keep moving forward. I had to do the right thing. And so I paid them, and I drove that car forever. What well, was it? It was like <laughs> it was like a, a black Mercedes, like a big meathead. You know, I made one deal, and went and bought a Mercedes. But I, I think I drove that car for 20 years. And it had the sticker, please, Lord, give me one more chance. I promise not to piss it away was the word on there. But, yeah. But, so, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. But I, I think it formed, it molds you, right? Yeah. So I don't sign notes anymore. (laughs) And I think, you know, whether you sign a note or not, you got to pay them. You got to pay them. But it gives you a little bit more leverage for them to be nicer to you. Yeah. More pliable. Will you describe what the
1: tollway, you're, you're kind of the king of the tollway. I mean, the tollway and you are synonymous. What did the tollway look like when you first saw it? Because you've gotten lot,
0: to see it over the last yeah. time. Are you even shocked that it's pretty much now up in Oklahoma? It's crazy. But so when I was there, there was a bunch of car dealerships on the Yeah. So there were maybe one or two office buildings. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it was like pad sites, retail strips, Henry Butts, De- Oldsmobile dealership, RTC hits. All that stuff goes bust. A German group bought Henry Butts Olds. It was like... I think it was 10 acres on the tollway. The Ewing family owned a dealership there. Every, all the dealerships were moving north. They were moving to Frisco and Plano. And you're going to love this story. but I, I, So nobody wanted office land. And I thought, <laughs> I knew the tenants. I knew the tenants and I knew what was going on with the tenants. So there was a site on Keller Springs in the tollway. And Bob Folsom, the ex-mayor of Dallas, owned it. And Denny Holman, his right-hand man, I called him, and I said, Mr. Holman, I'd like to come see you. And so I go see him, and I go, I want to build an office building on your land. He starts laughing, and he goes, I haven't had anybody talk to me about building an office building in quite some time. Why do you think? And I said, here's what I, I did. I'm a tenant rep broker. I don't have any money. I can go get an architect to spec some work and I can lease this building if you'll give me the time. And he says, well, how much time do you want? I said, I want 90 days and I'll give you earnest money, but the check's no good. And he starts laughing. <laughs> and he goes, the check's no good. I said, no, it's not any good. I said, but I'll give you the check. And he goes, well, is it the, You know, it's not any good. I said, just let me give you the check, just hold it and give me 90 days and I'll come back and report to you how I've done. So I went to a tenant uh, architectural firm that I'd been tenant rep for. He designed two buildings on the site. Really, I had a site plan and a rendering. I knew that Sun Microsystems was in an old building on Preston Road and I knew they were gonna go out and look and they had 175,000 square feet. So I called, I designed this building, really efficient plates, because you learn that through tenant rep and I built this really cool design. It was a picture, it was nothing. And I went and called Sun Microsystems and they had a broker and they connected me to the broker and I actually got traction from them. And this was not an efficient market like it is today. So I start actually negotiating and then I go, oh my God, I gotta figure out what this costs so I can figure out what it should, what the rent should be. So I went and found, I had a, I hired a guy, he became my partner and he helped me get a budget and we put a budget together and we had a rental rate. Then my time expired on the land. So I go back to Folsom and I go, look. And I showed him the letters of intent going back and forth and I showed him the budgets and he goes, keep going, I'll give you another 90 days. I love it. And so, believe it or not, then I got Sun Microsystems into a signed letter of intent for 175,000 square feet. Not one time in that whole process I went to Car America, Bill Vanderstraten, who's now at- Chief? Yeah, yeah, the Chief. And he was my partner. He put the money up. Not one time in that whole process did anybody ask me if I'd ever built a building. <laughs> I kept waiting. Like I go into a meeting with a lender and I'm going, okay, they're going to ask. They never did. And it, it's probably because I delivered the tenant, but, and it happened and it built. You built it? We built it. It's there today. I just tried to buy it. I'm really proud of it. It's kind of a timeless building. And then that started me on the tollway. And then at the same time, I went down to the Germans that bought the car dealership. And there, there was rumors that J.P. Morgan Chase was coming to Dallas from New York. I went and met with them. And I said, I just did this up here. I can do this here. And they went, I showed them all the paperwork and they said, okay. So. Steve Platt was my partner, my development partner, and he was the meat because he could give him detail. So I'm starting to meet with the Germans. I got a building design, HKS. I went to HKS and they spec the work. It was great. Get a site plan and a, and a floor plan. And then the Germans in the middle of it decide to build it spec. And I'm going, oh my God, we're going to build two buildings and I don't have a tenant. So they start building this building. You're going to love this. So J. P. Morgan shows up, and they're all where they're all in a bus with no name tags or anything, and they come in, and our building's now up. this is eight it's it's up. and it had been sitting there for like six months with no leasing. and J. P. Morgan comes in and they walk the building, and we had the ceiling heights, the f- fish and plate. we went up on parking ratio because parking was starting to be a big mover, and so we made some really good decisions there. So we had one 350,000 foot building spec and then t- space for two more. You're gonna love this. <laughs> so these guys show up, we know who they are, but they don't know we know who they are. We gave them cowboy hat, hard hats, and off we go. And two weeks later, Staubach was representing them. We start trading paper on the first building. And they come to us and they go, can you build two more? Uh Sure. Yeah. <laughs> And so they signed a lease for 750,000 square feet. I'm on a panel in Dallas for the Dallas Business Journal, getting peppered. I have the letter of intent in my coat pocket and I'm getting peppered by the people thinking, saying what an idiot I am to have built that building spec on the tollway because it's just sitting there. And I just was sitting there I was like, you know, I was just like thinking, oh yeah. But, and I said, I just have a feeling it's gonna lease. (laughs) <laughs> and I just have faith that it's going to lease. And like two weeks later, we announced it. And, and it kind of catapulted me then. Then it wasn't about, can you do it? And I just stayed there because I think the towway is the spine of Dallas. Yeah. And we started downtown. Uptown's hot. Preston Center's the next safe place in Dallas. Then it jumped to Legacy. And I actually think mid-towway where I've been playing is where everybody's going to come back to because they're going to realize that it's kind of the center. Yeah. And like Preston Center, barrier Stantry, people are milking those buildings. But because there's barriers, they're solid. Uptown is, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah. a layup, but legacy soft right now up there, up north, it's soft. And, um, I think the tollway, like I'm, I'm about to try to build a building there right now, you know, and if I do, like I've got it and I have two tenants, I had a, I have an oil company that was in 120,000 feet. They're taking 80, and they want they want the amenities. They want their space differently. They want the amenity package. They want it more of a hospitality feel. I mean, I think office has changed forever. I don't think it's going to be as bad as it is, but I think it's changed forever. And I think the stuff that's poorly done is going to be something else. Pickleball courts or whatever, but it's not going to be office. What does poorly done mean to you besides just being outdated and just... Not amenitized, not walkable location. You know, you, you they used to stick an office building up on the corner and think people will come. I think those days are over. Now, if you've got a B building on the tollway and it's well located and it's not walkable, it's going to function. It's going to function at. It's going to be. It's going to be challenged more than an A type building because we're not getting any pushback on rents. Like I own eight or nine buildings now, and a lot of them are B B pluses they're all full. They're 96% leased. We're not giving concessions on rent. If there's one concession, it's TI. And I think for office to survive, we got to figure that out. Got to stop spending all that money. I was going to, te- I was going to say the, the TI is getting a little bit out of control. So more than a little, like and, I, and- I was looking at a price on a building I'm building in Plano. It's a new building, $159 a square foot. And it's for, for a, uh, well, services company, it's not crazy finish up. It's nuts. How long a lease would that be? 10 years? 12.
1: Didn't you go in? I mean, I, I had a, it was Dean Adler on the podcast and he was just saying, you know, in every other asset class, you put TI below the, the yeah. NOI line item, but in office yeah. you do it and it's all your cat. Your cash is just constantly going back in the building. Well, and
0: the problem is, is you get a tenant in there for 10 years and their lease is up and then they move and then you've got a Spend $10 demoing it and then another, you know, 30. Like I'm looking at a building on the tow way I built, sold, bought back, released, sold, and I'm about to buy it back. I'm trying to. And they made the mistake. It's a B building. It's in a, it's well located. It's got great visibility, but they, they demoed all the second generation space. So it's a building that will get 22 to 23 plus electric rents. And it's going to cost 110 bucks a foot. It doesn't make sense. And the lender that owns it, I said, guys, you're toast. So what do you think happens there? You think
1: you, you just keep dancing with them until the lender finally just gives in or? Either the
0: lender's going to lease it up and lose more money or they're going to sell it for what it's worth, which, you know, they probably had $30 million in debt and it's probably worth eight. And some of the like office will never be the same again. Do you think that
1: COVID just accelerated a trend or do you really think if COVID had never happened
0: I think if COVID had never happened it wouldn't be to this degree. I don't think productivity's as good. I think productivity's down across our nation. Oh, for sure. I think we're soft. I yeah. think I think COVID has taught everybody that they get free money. And it's, it's a mess, I yeah, think. Yeah. I think our productivity's off 60%. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about eight months ago. And if, if you look at it, like the government in Washington, D.C. has still not brought people back to work. I know. I have a friend that has a disability, and he is trying to get his disability renewed. He's been doing it for three years. Nobody responds. Nobody's at the office. Nobody cares. We're paying them to watch Netflix. And I think, I don't know if you noticed just this week, a lot of people are saying back to work, back to work. Yep. And one of the things why I think office is changing is, it's about the commute. It's about, nobody wants to be in the car over 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. So I think the guy living in Prosper, driving downtown, that's over. That's why I think the middle is gonna be good for Dallas. Yeah. Right? So I think it's about that. And it's about a better experience so that when you when your employees come to your, your office, they never have to leave. They, they can leave if they want, but there's food there. There's everything they need and, and they have spaces to gather and they feel comfortable there. Now I don't get the sleeping rooms and the foosball and the, you know, but that's fine if that's what they want. Yeah. Cause like I'm a big believer in go to work, work hard and go home because I want, you know, I, I I want my employees to be with their kids. I want them to be at the soccer game. I want them to go to the parent-teacher conference. They need to go do all that stuff. I didn't do any of it. Yeah. Now I did it on my second batch. You know, I've been so much better when you're older, you're smarter, but, but and so, but I think you want to build amenities in in an environment where they want to stay and they can be more productive and they feel loved that you care. I think employees need to know you care about them. I totally agree. I, and I agree with the the foosball and the safe spaces, and so we, we're building a pickleball court. where I've built bocce ball courts. I built, I built putting greens. We put charcoal grills out, and I, and you know what I do? I go sit. I go into my building. I get a cup of coffee, and I get my laptop, and I go into the conference center, and I watch people coming in the morning, and I just sit there and watch them. And all the stuff we built, what are they using? And then. At lunch, I do the same thing. And at night, I do the same thing. And what do they use? About 20% of it. Yeah. But what they're using, they're loving. So I'm going to lean into that. And I'm going to stop doing all this other stuff. And it's gathering areas. It's anything that makes their life like good food. Like we're, we're, we're subsidizing food. Food's really important. Food's probably the most important one. So you're putting in a restaurant or something, and and offering free rent, paying for it, subsidizing it, and giving them great food at really cheap price. It's cheap. I mean, it's not cheap, but it's it's it keeps it full, and you pass it through. It's an operating expense. I have 120,000 foot building on the towway that I office in. It's got a full gym, a full restaurant. We spent a million bucks building the restaurant out. It's five stars on Yelp. There's people waiting in line to get into place. Really? Because we took a caterer and put her in business. Okay, what is the capital market world telling you? It's really hard.
1: Yeah. And is, is anybody building office right now? I mean, if it wasn't already permitted and funded, is pretty much everything, not just DFW, but I'm sure your peers across the country. I mean, it's just- all,
0: all the guys that beat or did it during COVID, that beat COVID, got the interest rates that were reasonable are going to win because you know all the stuff that's coming up in uptown but you know a lot of the guys up north that built there's like there's four or five large buildings going up the leasing's not great it's really? not and it's there all the big tenants are on the sidelines i think corporate america is waiting to see what's going to happen yeah but the local entrepreneur like you and i it's business as usual they're making decisions so i i decided we sold everything we could sell during COVID when when money was free and interest rates were, it was crazy. Like we would underwrite selling a building at a seven cap and we're getting an offer for a five. Yeah. I'm selling it out of here. Buy? I mean, I sold a building in Arkansas for a five cap.
1: (laughs) So you'll buy it back at a 10. Well,
0: ever. But, but (laughs) once I did that, I said, okay. And I went and looked at everything we owned And the game had been big blocks, go buy big blocks up North and wait for the big user. And I went to my leasing team, I have in house leasing, and I said, okay, what are you seeing? They go, what do you mean? I said, I want you to write down every tenant that comes through here, and the size, and what they're looking for, and where they're from. If they're from Dallas, in town, out of town. And I said, 60 days, we're gonna sit down again. Come back, and I look, and I got, I got a 90,000 foot block. There's an 8,000, a 10,000, 20,000 foot tenant, 6,000 foot tenant. I'm going, build it in the spec suites. And I wanted to build two floors, So 60,000 feet and do it in spec suites. Why? That was my customer. I think it's shifting to to smaller entrepreneurial guys making decisions. I can control my cost. I don't have somebody telling me this, this, and this because it's done. So I'll go build the lobby, put the finishes in, and then where the offices go, I'll pop walls in when they come. I can have it ready for them in no time. And I can take my TI cost from 90 bucks to 70. And I'm ready because people want to make a decision, right? Yeah. And we've taken that building. It's 100% leased. And there's all these other people that are up there that we're competing with that still have the big blocks. Now they're starting to. Yep. But I think you you have to be, office is hard. And I think you really have to be on your toes and aggressive. And you have to face it. Like it, it was hard for me to face that it's changing because most of the time I thought it was going to come back. Yeah. First 18 months. Uh, we're we're, we're going to be fine, you know, but it's not, it's going to be different. And I think AI is going to change it too. I mean, call centers, anybody that invested in call centers. Yeah. That's it's trouble. Toast. Yeah. You know, maybe you can do dry storage or <laughs> <laughs> several floors of pickleball. I don't know, but I think all that's toast. So what's going to happen to these? I think get call, it gets sold for land value. The bad yeah. Land value.
1: I and think we're land not there value.
0: yet. It's coming though. I've seen a couple of them. Like, I'm looking at a building on the tollway, and it's a dated building, and it's not a great owner. It's a REIT that's in trouble. And it's about 60% occupied. It's a 130,000 foot building. You can buy, I, I told them I'd buy it for $5 million, and they want eight. But I don't really think that's what you should buy today. I don't think you should buy anything that's got deferred maintenance. Because I think you're going to be able to buy stabilized quality, office, stabilized quality assets at 13 caps. And I'm seeing it. I've come close on a couple. And what's happened is I've been really close on one and the partner bought out the institutional partner. So the institution says, we're out. They take it to market. The market dictates that it's going to sell at a 13 cap and the partner buys them out.
1: Are there more people entering the buyer pool that maybe weren't like they're the distressed buyers or is it fewer buyers is it fewer no is, is it all the same buyers that were there before just fewer of them or are these folks that might have been in something else and now they're 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 more opportunistic
0: and saying this is going to be our play nobody wants office it has to be a layup like so good that it's a for dirty the, word for them to do it it is but do you remember retail in 2007 yeah 2009? retail was toast what is it now? It's solid.
1: Well, it's what you said, though. I mean, yeah. the, the buildings that are working in office are working better than others. The Crescent here in Fort Worth, totally. most expensive building in town. Right. It's, you can't get in there. You go downtown and
0: they can't give it away. I've always wanted to build a building at Fort Worth well, for the very, very same reason. I couldn't find a site because everybody is very conservative in their rates. And John went and proved it. John went and built that building and he's getting rents. 30% over anybody else, because people want quality, right. they'll pay for it. You're going in there, yep. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because it's, I mean, and for me, I, I want to be in a nice building. But I, I think it's changed, and yeah. I think we have to face it. But I don't think that B office buildings that are well done are toast. They're not, if they're well located. But my buying criteria for an office building, but, but you asked them equity. It's hard. So I do all private high net worth. Yeah, We have about 40 family offices. So I went on a road show, not with a deal, but just to say, okay, what do you think about office? All of them to a person said, we have had good success with you, so we will give you some money, but it won't be what we normally do. Yeah. So I, you know, if a guy normally gives us, a family gives us 5 million, it's probably gonna be a million or less. Yeah. And the problem is, Leverage is down. So if you're going to do a yeah. $70 million building, I need to raise $35 million. So it's just a big raise. It's a big lift. Has construction leveled out or is it still going up? I think it's starting to. And I think it's more in labor than materials. Yeah. Because I think people are, their job, their pipeline's drying up. But we haven't seen any material savings. We, the one we're building in Plano, I think we cut 4% out. But that we started that a year ago. I was talking to Barry last
1: week and he was saying, I guess he's on the board of a big contractor in Dallas and they were saying that they're busier than ever. And he's like, how could that, you know, how could that be? And he said, well, it's usually 70% private, 30% government. And now it's just 70% government, 30% private. And the government pays well, pays a lot. They're the, the best customer you could actually ask for once you get in bed with them
0: right all the contractors that we normally use are are focused on government work you know none of them really want to do it they still want to go build office buildings and industrial and whatever else but you know you gotta you gotta feed the beast right but i i think i think the best opportunity is going to be office if you have the the guts to do it but you have to be really disciplined in what you buy and I think like what John's talking about, he, John Goff, he wants to go buy quality. And I think, I think you will be able to buy quality at good prices because you've got institutional owners that are just taking a broad brush and saying, get rid of 20% of our office or 30% or whatever it is. What do you think they're gonna do? They're gonna sell their best stuff because they're not gonna sell their bad stuff. They're not gonna get anything for it.
1: Have you ever thought about building, and maybe you have, and, but have you ever thought about building the, the class AA tower crown jewel? Or,
0: kind of, I've always wanted to, yeah. and I'm kind of thinking, so like we would build six to eight buildings a year, right? Starting in when, oh seven like, or. Yeah, like, whatever. I mean, like not, not every year, but in the last few years we were doing a lot of building buildings for companies. Like, you know, we had, a, so we do a build a suit for people because it was slow risk. It's great. And those days are over. I mean, I think maybe a guy like me is going to build two really well done buildings if maybe one a year yeah if i'm lucky starting when i think it's now like i'm, I'm about to i'm going to see if i can raise the money for the one i'm building now yeah and and then is it, it buy and hold because there's yes. probably no buy
1: and sell yeah. market right now yeah
0: so i, I talked so then after i've talked to all the private networks i went to institutional here's institutionals framework for buying office no deferred maintenance 80% of your equity back in five years in cash flow, two and a half multiple. So no deferred maintenance, stabilized 80% of your money back in cash flow, two and a half multiple. That means you're buying a quality building at an 11, 12, 13 cap. And so like my view, seller's views here, money's down here and the sellers are coming to it. And I think it's going to happen this year. I do. But I think everybody's waiting because they're afraid to be too early. I think now's the time to buy. There's no debt or equity. Now, if you can figure out how to do it, like I've been talking to my family offices again, just because I'm starting to see opportunity. Like we thought we had one building. I've got a building in Austin. I'm negotiating to buy right now. And it's in the Preston Center of Austin. It's a great location and it's a great building. And it's about a 12 and a half cap. Golly. Right, and it's 86% leased.
1: And so and right now, the current owners of those buildings, it's a death spiral because they're not they're not going to put any more money into no. them anyway. They can't even afford leasing
0: commissions or tenant improvements. Well, this is an institutional owner that has the money and he, they're just out. Yeah. They're, and not- so what they've decided is they were out and then they saw the numbers and they said, OK, we're not out. Then they said, well, you know what? We're out. And now they're going to go take their, their poison. And when I was driving over here, they counted us. So I made an offer. And they counted me $250,000 higher on a $60 million deal. And I'm going to say no, <laughs> but 250 is nothing. What does that tell you? In Austin, Texas? Yes. Okay. And I'm still scared. I'm going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun to negotiate. <laughs> but I mean, you get it and you go, okay. Shit. Why did I get am it? Am I supposed to get this? Yeah, that's, you know, that's where you go pray, right? God, yeah. what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Give me peace about this. It's fun though. You started uh, doing multifamily industrial. Yeah, I uh, I love my team. I've got like twenty six people. I got a hundred in my company, but I've got twenty six people in my office. Twenty six, twenty seven. Best people I've ever had. So happy. Great culture. It's awesome. Flat. We all talk. It's we're we're. I love it. Got a lot of good young people. It's awesome. And you know, because in my career, I used to want bigger and more. Yeah. And I got up to like 280 employees and this was crazy. I didn't know what anybody did or who they were. It was terrible. It was no fun. But I have a really good group and I, I love the culture. And I said, okay, the problem with my business is it's all built on me. So I'm the rainmaker and I go start everything and then they finish it. I, I don't like to finish stuff. I like to go create it, deliver it, and go to the next thing and I like I, that. Right, and I have all these really talented people to get into the minutia, and and I'm a big believer in do what you're really good at all day long, and let somebody else do that other stuff instead of messing with it. Like I remember when I was a broker, a guy said to me, "I'm I have dyslexia, so reading's really a problem for me, especially if I don't want to read it." And it's like a ninety thousand foot lease, and he goes, "Okay, I want you to read the, I want you to read the lease over the weekend and give me your comments. This is my client." I looked at him and I said you don't want me reading your lease. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, listen, I'm here to negotiate the terms and make sure that they honor them. I'm not your lawyer. You got to get a lawyer because I'm going to do a bad job. Now I can go try and do this and I'm going to come back and it's going to be worthless. So <laughs> let's just save the time and have, get the lawyer to do it. And that's the first time I ever had the guts to say it. And ever since then, I've never done it. And because I'm not good at it, yeah. I don't want to do it. So I, I was worried about my team because I'm 70. Yeah, And I'm sitting here going, holy cow, how'd I get this old? And I got my daughter just moving here and I want to protect them. And I love them. And so I said, okay, I'm going to diversify. I had a guy I've been trying to hire. I bought Wilcox from Ray Hunt 35 years ago. And he was running Ray Hunt's industrial. He was running when he did started Meridian Industrial Reef. His name is Tim Keith. And I said, Tim, uh, come work for me. And he said, no. And then he went to Reef. And then he left Reef and I said, Tim, come work for me. He said, no. Then he went to another job and he just kept saying no. So I'm in Nordstrom's two years ago, buying pants on sale after Christmas. <laughs> and there he is. And he looks at me and I go, Tim, what's I'm up? work for me. He goes, I'm a free agent. I said, maybe this is the time. Come on. So we get together and he, he had been working on the bullet train and he told me it was about to unravel because they were we're not going to go forward. And so I had the right guy. I'm a big believer in betting on people. So I hired him, made him my partner in industrial. And we got in the industrial business. We bought 400 acres in South Dallas. We bought 200 acres in Sanger and we started trying to buy industrial. We've been trying to buy bigger stuff, but not million square footers, buy two to 500,000 foot buildings that have maybe 18 months to two years left on the lease. Yep what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Right. And we're, I love Laredo. We're down in Laredo. We've got a land position there and we're about to build a spec building there. If I can raise the money. Probably so, easier to raise that. Yeah. So he's great. And that's going. And then I wanted to get in the multifamily business. I had been in it and didn't like it, but I had the wrong partner. And so we went out and found, cause I, I, I had JPI would call me all the time and say, can you build an office building here? So Plano will let me build 900 units. I said, well, if I'm going to build the office building, I'm going to build the apartments. Yeah. But those days are over. So, but I'm in it and we bought some land positions. Okay. I think right now I'm not going to take any development risk. I don't have to, right. because I think it's crazy. Yeah. If you've got good land and I, I use high net worth people, so we pay cash for it. I'm just going to sit and I'm, I'm going to get these positions And then be busy when when the interest rates start coming down and everything gets safer, I'm gonna go for it. So I've got land positions there, multifamily. I bought the Willow Bend Mall in Plano with Yeah, with Centennial. And Centennial is They're retail guys. They're they're mall guys. Okay. And Steve Levin is a good friend, and he said, hey. I've got Willow Bend Mall, and I said I love that play because it's it's land value. And his job is to do the retail. My job is multifamily, office, and hotel. Hotel. Yeah, I'm just going to help find a hotel. I'm not going to own hotels, but yeah, just to help with everything non-retail. Have you ever been tempted to get into hotels? After 9/11, I got in the hotel business. Why'd you get out? Got I didn't like hand smacked. I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I picked a guy, and I picked the wrong guy, and we bought three hotels. I owned the Green Oaks Inn here. <laughs> I tore it down. I built an office building there. The Green Oaks Inn, like on Green Oaks yeah. Boulevard, that's right by my house. Yeah. What's it now? It's an office building. The oh, cooks, yeah. cooks Children's, I built the building, Raytheon leased it, or no, uh, Lockheed leased it, leased it, and then Cooks Children's bought it from me about 10 years ago. But I didn't like the business. It's an operating business, you know? I've had I've had uh a
1: couple people that are obviously are in the hotel business and do well in the hotel business, yeah. but they always say they're like, if you stay in real estate long enough and you make enough money, you get in the hotel business and it's great. Now, obviously, I wouldn't have wanted to be in it probably 2020, 2021, but it's home- what you said. It's a it's it, that and senior health, senior housing, it's an operating company more than it is a real estate business.
0: Right. You know, for me. One of the things I've learned is to stay in my lane. You know, like I went and did those, I, I, I had a great idea. They said, we'll never travel again after 9-11. I said, okay, that means we need to buy hotels. That's rainwater. Yeah. In the back of my head, go buy hotels. I went and I didn't know enough to know enough to get the right guy. Yeah. And then we went and bought them and we bought the wrong stuff. And we had one disaster, one okay, one great one. And overall, it was fine. It's a wash. Yeah. How did you find your multi guy? Networking. I just kept reaching out.
1: And, and what did you look for? So you said, I want to get into multi. I want to build class A multi in probably good areas of Dallas. Was that the thesis?
0: No, the thesis was I wanted to build three and four story walk up, surface park, stick build. That's that's where you make your money in multifamily, in my opinion. Why? Well, it's less risk. It's lower rents. It's easy delivery. Does walk up mean no elevators? Yeah. I mean, you put elevators in, but it's, yeah. it's a stick built product yeah, instead yeah. of high rise. And so, because when I started, I wanted to go out, out north and build apartments and then build office buildings with it. But, and I think mixed use is the answer going forward. But so now what, 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 what it's morphed into is so well bend. When he came to me with well bend, I said, I'm in. And so what we're gonna do with Willow Bend is a million square feet. We're gonna tear down 700,000 square feet. We're gonna make it smaller, it's too big. Their Centennial's gonna do all the retail. We got we just got zoning approval. We go back to the city council in two weeks, so I don't have it yet, but for about 900, 950 units. So that's four nice projects in a primo location. And we bought this mall at a price where I'm buying it for land value and I've got 5,000 structured parking stalls there and I'm gonna make it a walkable location and I'm gonna stick an office building right up next to one of those parking garages and I'll be 30, 40% under cost in you know, the only walkable location in all of Plano. And I think I'll kill it. That, now that's where you could go build a special building because it's got courtyard and food. I'll send you the deck when we're done. Well, we're gonna try to mirror the domain. Is Centennial Murdad? No, Centennial is Steve Levin. Okay. Murdad's. He's a stud. God, I dang. love him. What a. I've actually never met him. But he's uh, great. Most prolific guy. He's got more guts than anybody I've ever met. No him. kidding. He's man. not afraid of risk. You know, some of these guys don't have the risk gene. He, he's boom, he's all in. And he's good. He's really good.
1: And uh, he does it with like three people. It's crazy. How do we go buy Ridgemore Mall together? Is it is it for sale? Well, it's been in this. It, it, the CMBS note has been in forbearance since like 2016. I mean, if you drive by it, it is toast. Is it a good location? Oh, it's right there by Shady Oaks. It's it's one further right down, down from it's it's on 54 acres. It's been busted up forever. Lehman's left everything left. I so wanted to buy that.
0: Lehman's is in Willow Bend, and we're trying to. And I think the economy's helped us because they got nowhere to go, and they've got their own issues, but. They've got nowhere to go. If if Neiman's leaves Willow Bend, we have a land deal, not a mall. I, well, that's the whole problem with the malls. Well, if you got one anchor that's you got to buy it for land value, or right. you know. But I would be all over that because you know Fort Worth. It's hard to find that land. That yeah. land is awesome. It's this is incredible
1: dirt. Maybe we have something to work on. We're after in this. on that. All right. You were once young. It's a challenging industry. I was once young. If there's young people still listening young. to this yeah, or people getting into the industry, I think it's a time where there's people that have been in it or are wondering, should I stay in it? There's people that haven't been in it coming out of college. It's, if you're getting into real estate in like 2010 to 2020, 2022, it was the greatest thing ever. What would you tell folks right now? I think
0: we're really lucky we're in Texas. My daughter, Kelly, I've got a daughter, Kaylee. I've got a Keeley that's my wife, but yeah. I want them in the business it's, yeah. and I love them. And I think real estate is an incredible industry, but everybody looks at it like it's easy and we all know it's not. It's not. And so, I mean, it's work ethic and creativity and commitment, but I think it's good to get into an industry now where there's chop because I think you learn more. Yeah. Like my daughter moved here and it like the, you know, everything stopped and it's so slow in our company because I'm not, I'm not gonna go take $60 million and build something for fees. I'm not gonna do it. If I have a good site, I'm gonna wait until there's a safe environment and I'm gonna maximize the bet. One of the things you learn as you get older, make less bets, more money. You know, I got a guy that I invest with that's really creative, and I said to him, we had a deal in Austin, I was his partner's money. It was a great deal, and he screwed the whole thing up because he's got too much on his plate. And I said, if you would do half the business, you'd make three times the money. And so I really do think when you get an opportunity, focus on that opportunity, because it's a good one. Because every time you go get an opportunity, it's risk. So I think less, is more yep.
1: all right bill this has been a great day awesome thanks for joining me today. thanks
0: for having me i mean you got all these frothy names it was it was uh, a pleasure to be included It was it was a real honor thank great. you thanks thanks for having me i hope you've enjoyed
1: this episode of the fort podcasts be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to youtube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.